So in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is in the middle of an extended defense of his ministry. Some people seem to think that Paul was not a legitimate minister of the gospel. Because in natural terms, he was an unimpressive person. Most scholars think that Paul had some sort of vision problem, that he had bad eyes. And scholars think also that perhaps he had a speech impediment of some sort. Though he had a brilliant mind and was a recipient of much revelation from God, he didn't make much of an impression upon people in terms of his personality. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 10 tells us that some people said of him that his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. This is what people thought of Paul. And these people wrongly concluded that the real gospel ministers were the strong ones. The real gospel ministers were the eloquent ones. The charismatic ones, the impressive ones. Paul has defended himself so far in this letter by appealing to his sincerity. He's appealed to his fruitfulness. He's appealed to his calling. He's appealed to his doctrine. And he has asserted that he is, in fact, a real apostle. His ministry is authentic and legitimate. He goes on throughout the rest of the epistle to further defend his ministry. But he introduces us to a metaphor in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, which is central to the text that we're studying tonight, which accounts for his weakness, and yet, at the same time, speaks to the legitimacy and authenticity of his ministry, in spite of that weakness. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. The immediate context is, of course, Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry. So when he says we, that's what he most primarily and fundamentally means. Himself and Timothy and his other ministerial colleagues who are associated with him, who are all being criticized as illegitimate because of their relative and comparative weakness and unimpressiveness. There are these groups of pastors and Super apostles, Paul calls them, and teachers and gurus who, who just wow people with their rhetorical skills and their, their forceful, impressive uh, people with, with big personalities. And naturally, people gravitate to those guys. And then Paul and his little band come along, and Paul with his vision problems. If you were in our day and age, probably, you know, thick glasses and a speech impediment of some sort. And, trying to get people to listen to him as he preaches the gospel. And his ministerial colleagues, likewise, unimpressive. And so, by way of comparing and contrasting, these guys seem to be a, a little, uh, un, unimpressive little bunch. So when Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, he means him and his friends, his band, his ministerial colleagues, we are jars of clay. He's acknowledging but by extension, this same metaphor could apply to any of us who would not dare to think of ourselves so highly as to place ourselves above the Apostle. In other words, if you consider yourself a jar of titanium, then tune out, because this message will not really be very applicable to you. 
You say, well, maybe he was a jar of clay, but as for me, I'm a jar of titanium. I have nothing to learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This message is not for you. Perhaps you need to hear a message on the verse which says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> but if you're willing to acknowledge, you know what, Paul and his companions acknowledge that they are jars of clay. We are just normal, average Christians. Surely we are also jars of clay. We can see that even though this passage isn't directly about us or to us, we can certainly understand and learn by way of inference and implication what Paul says here about people who are like jars of clay as they go through suffering. We are all jars of clay. Which is to say that there is much weakness in us. And God has designed it that way. It's not even a reference to sin, per se. But just creaturely weakness and finiteness. A lie of Satan in the garden in the beginning was that Adam and Eve could be fine on their own. Independent of God. And it is a lie that has been repeated and perpetuated in various ways ever since that original fall into sin. But it is a lie. Humans were created to be dependent. We are creatures who need our Creator. We are His flock. He doth us feed. We sometimes sing based on Psalm 100. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. We are dependent. We were never designed to be self-sufficient beings. Nor were we designed to be autonomous beings. We were designed to be dependent beings who need to lean on God. And as it pertains to Adam and Eve, they needed to submit to God's Word and come under His law. They were not designed to be autonomous. We see even Jesus in His incarnation saying it is His food to do the will of the Father. According to His human nature, even Jesus obeyed the law of God as a good human ought to do, subject to the law of God. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. We see Jesus being dependent on His Father through the Spirit, according to His human nature. In John chapter 5, and verse 19, He says, The Son can do nothing by Himself. In John chapter 5, and verse 30, He says, By Myself I can do nothing. In John chapter 8, and verse 28, Jesus says, I do nothing on My own, but speak just what the Father has taught Me. Many times we read in the Gospels statements like this, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke chapter 5 and verse 16. Jesus spent His incarnate life on this earth depending on God. Though He was without sin, 
He was truly human, and to be truly human is to be dependent on God, to be subject to Him. Humans are jars of clay, subject to creatureliness, subject to finiteness. And again, God has designed it that way. Look at the language of verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's subtle, but this is the language of intention. Paul does not say, and it just so happens that it shows that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He doesn't say, we have this treasure in jars of clay, and lo and behold, by coincidence... It happens to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see it's subtle there, but there's this implication of intention. Somebody put this treasure in jars of clay for a purpose. And that somebody was God. And what was the purpose of God? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we are jars of clay, and jars of clay by design, weak, finite, dependent creatures. What is the treasure? Look at verse 6. What does Paul treasure? What does Paul treasure? He doesn't introduce the word treasure before verse 7. So to find out what he means when he says this treasure in verse 7, we can't just go look at where the word treasure pops up previously. We have to look at where the concept of treasure pops up previously. What does Paul treasure? If you look at verse 6, he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, To give, so Paul is receiving something, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The very next thing he says is, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. So what is the treasure then? It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul has come to know God's glory. How? By looking at Jesus. Where did he see the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. That is his treasure. He treasures the knowledge of God's glory that he has gained by looking at Jesus. And he compares this knowledge of God's glory to a light that shines in the darkness. Truly, Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light with with respect to revelation. He is the full revelation of God, the truth. Our understanding is illuminated by Jesus as to who God is and what He expects of us and so on and so forth. He's the revelation of God. In that sense, He is the light. He is our teacher, the one who tells us the truth and enlightens us. 
But Jesus is also the light in another sense. Light in the sense of being light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Jesus is our hope. He's not only our teacher, thank, thank God that He's not only our teacher. He is our Savior. If Jesus only told us the truth, we would be guilty of sin still. For the truth is that we are guilty sinners. And if all we did was just learn that, and if Jesus was only light to us in the sense of telling us the truth, we'd still be in our sins. But Jesus is the light at the end of the tunnel for sinners who are looking for hope. At the cross, Jesus substituted Himself for sinners. What happened at the cross? Jesus bore the penalty that we deserved for our sin. He told us that we were guilty sinners who deserved eternal punishment, according to Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved at the cross. That's what transpired there. So He's not only light in terms of revelation, but He's light in terms of hope. In Jesus, we have hope that we're not going to be in the darkness under God's wrath forever, but that there's a way out. Jesus is the light. He is the glory of God. We look at Jesus and we see how great God is. For Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So we know as we saw this morning that Jesus sinners does receive. Which means the Father sinners does receive. We know that Jesus shares table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. We know that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Which means that God is willing to have table fellowship with people like us. We realize that Jesus, without being sinful, Jesus, perfectly holy, nevertheless condescends to know, to accept, to love people like us. Which means that God, though He is holy, condescends to know and to love and to accept people like us. What a glorious God who is not Himself sinful and yet deigns to fellowship with us sinners. Full of holiness and yet full of grace. Full of purity and yet full of love. We see a glorious God when we gaze upon Jesus Christ. What a treasure it is to see and to behold, to hear the gospel, to look upon Christ with the eyes of faith. What a treasure. So Paul's ministry is legitimate. He himself is just a jar of clay. He concedes it. He doesn't argue that he is strong and impressive and that they have simply misunderstood him. No, 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 no. No. You say that his letters are forceful and weighty, but 
when he shows up. He's weak and unimpressive, but you got it all wrong. Next time I come, I'm going to show you that I'm so forceful and so impressive and I'm an eloquent speaker and I can see better than you think. <laughs> this, is not, this is not the tack that Paul takes when he addresses these arguments. He concedes it. I'm just a jar of clay. But there's a treasure in the jar of clay. He says essentially, yeah, you're right. I'm just a jar of clay. But look inside. And you're going to see a treasure. We aren't the treasure. The glory of God in the face of Christ that we have beheld is the treasure. Now Paul goes on to talk about suffering after verse 7. Let's jump ahead to examine the phrase in verse 10 and 11. He says, We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also will be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Okay. Why were Paul and his ministerial colleagues being given over to death? For whose sake? For Jesus' sake. Well, how, how does the giving over of Paul and his ministerial colleagues to death result in some benefit to Jesus? Well, the last half of that sentence tells us, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So if these guys are given over to death, then what's going to happen is that the life of Jesus is going to be manifested. And all of that is for Jesus' sake. Alright, let's unpack this a little bit. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, verse 8. But not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. You see a parallel phrase there? The same thing in verse 10 as in verse 11. The life of Jesus being manifested. The life of Jesus being manifested. It's repeated. So what happens? As these guys suffer and yet are not crushed. As these guys suffer but are not despairing. As these guys suffer but are not forsaken. As these guys suffer but are not destroyed. Something supernatural becomes visible. Why are these weak little men with vision problems and speech impediments still preaching the gospel? Why, when they're beaten and left for dead outside the city, do they just come back? Why, when, when we round these guys up and throw them in jail, and we warn them not to keep teaching and preaching in the name, why do they just go away rejoicing? Why, when we throw them in prison and it's the middle of the night, why are they singing? 
What is going on with these weak little guys? What is going on with these jars of clay? Where does this power come from? Because it can't come from them. These guys are nothing. Where does this power come from? We circle back around to verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God set it up this way. Remember, it's the language of intention. God revealed himself to his creatures who are finite, who are dependent. God orchestrates the circumstances of their lives in such a way not to spare them from suffering, but to manifest His life-sustaining and life-giving power in the midst of their suffering. So God's people may be afflicted. And not just in some ways, but in every way. God's people may be perplexed. God's people may be persecuted. But what will happen is that the life that Jesus gives, that's what it means when it says the life of Jesus. But what will happen is that the life that Jesus gives will become visible through their suffering. So Paul and his friends suffer. But they keep going. And they testify that Jesus is sustaining us. Jesus is strengthening us. Jesus is giving us life. And that becomes visible. And so their suffering is for Jesus' sake. To Jesus' glory. They're carrying around in their body the death of Jesus. Which obviously doesn't mean that they're atoning for their sins or for anyone else's sins. But there's an analogy between the death that is at work in them and the death of Jesus. And the point of connection is this. That like Jesus' death was for the sake of others. So their death is for the sake of others. As John Calvin said, we suffer not to give the price of redemption, but to proclaim the price of redemption. As we suffer, we testify of Jesus. And we make the life-giving power of Jesus and the life-sustaining power of Jesus visible. And so the life of Jesus is manifested even as we carry around in ourselves the death of Jesus, even as death is at work in us, even as we are afflicted and perplexed and persecuted, the life that Jesus gives is manifested, which results in glory to Jesus, and it also results, look at the end of verse 12, it also results in life in you. Paul says to those to whom he writes. 
In other words, he says, when you see me go on like this and suffer and depend on Jesus, and you see the sustenance that Jesus gives and the life that Jesus gives at work in me, it results in life in you. So there's this service that we're rendering to others when we suffer and we lean on. We're dependent on Jesus in the midst of it. We're looking to Him for life-sustaining and life-giving power. We find that we receive it. We are afflicted, yes, but not crushed. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. And why not? Jesus. That glorifies Him, which is why He says it's for Jesus' sake. And it also gives life to others. It results in life in you. And the the fact that it results in life for others is why Paul compares their suffering to the suffering of Jesus. Again, it's not as if they were atoning for anyone's sins, but it's this life-giving, redemptive, purposeful, benevolent suffering. See? So there's this treasure in jars of clay on purpose. Why? Not so that people would admire us and trust in us, but so that people would admire Jesus who gives us life and trust in Him, which results in His glory and in life for the watching, observing world. Alright? This is exactly then what Paul and his companions tried to do in their suffering. Testify of Jesus. Testify of Jesus' life-giving, life-sustaining power and work. This was the end and the goal that they always had in their suffering. Question for you. Is that what you do? Is that how you suffer? When you suffer, can you, can you take these words as your own? Say, yeah, right now I'm going through something, being afflicted, but I'm not crushed. I'm perplexed, but I'm not driven to despair. I'm persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. And why not? Jesus. Is that how you suffer? Look, you're going to suffer whether you do that or not. Because suffering is just part and parcel of our lot in life, in this world. It comes to us all. So I'm going to quote John Piper here and say, Don't waste your suffering. You can go through suffering and death will be at work in you. And no life at work in anyone else. You can go through suffering and it won't be for Jesus' sake. Because you're making nothing of it. You're wasting your suffering. But if you lean into Jesus in the midst of suffering, lean upon Him and ask Him, even though I'm afflicted in every way, please don't let me be crushed. Even though I am perplexed, please do not let me be driven to despair. Even though I'm persecuted, do not forsake me. Even though I'm struck down, do not let me be destroyed. And you find that 
The name of the Lord is a strong tower into which the righteous may run and be safe. Not necessarily spared from sufferings, but outwardly wasting away, as verse 16 says, but inwardly being renewed day by day. This is, this is what you'll find is that God's good on His promises and He'll help you and He'll strengthen you and there will always be that bedrock underneath it. And when people say, how are you getting through this? And you say, Jesus. Then, it's for Jesus' sake. And then it results in life for others. As they can look to Him in trust and in dependence also. In Judges chapter 7, there is a story that's familiar to many of us. Gideon's war with the Midianites. The Midianites come up against the people of Israel. And Gideon musters up 32,000 men. God immediately sends, or wait, no, 22,000 men. No, 32,000 men. Uh, you're going to have to look it up. <laughs> I think it's 32,000 men. And God sends 22,000 of them home right away. So there's 10,000 left. And God says, no, no, no. Still too many. God sends home another 9,700. And Gideon goes up against the Midianites with 300 men. And you know what their battle plan is? Good. They put these torches inside some jars. And when Gideon gives the word, they smash the jars and shout real loud. All right. The Midianites couldn't see the light in those jars until the jars were smashed. Alright, I'm not suggesting to you that 2 Corinthians 4 and Judges 7 are teaching the exact same thing. But I just think it's a bit of a helpful visual for us as we think about this text in 2 Corinthians 4. Just as the Midianites didn't know that these 300 men were sneaking around in the hills because the torches were inside the jars and they couldn't see the light until the jars were smashed. So the watching world doesn't know that you have a treasure very often until you're smashed. But when God puts you through something and you lean on Him in it, and your weakness is on display and God's surpassing power is also on display then all of a sudden people say ah, I never knew there was a treasure in that jar of clay but I see it now this is why God this is the way that God has set it up And this is why God often ordains suffering and difficulty in our lives. For Jesus' sake and for life in the hearers and the watchers around us. Death is at work in us, but it's for Jesus' sake. Death is at work in us, but it's for life in you, Paul says. We have 
the opportunity in suffering to be life givers and to be Jesus glorifiers to manifest the treasure both for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the people around us who are listening and watching so let's endeavor to suffer like the jars in Gideon's war against the Midianites revealing the light within us even as we are smashed